You are listening to the Sunday Morning Sermon from Faith Bible Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. You can find podcasts and other resources at www.faithbiblechurch.us. What difference would it make in your life if today, right after this service... A stranger tells you that they have just deposited $10 million in your bank account. What specifically would you change in the next things that you did? You may think, I would sure donate a lot more to the chili cook-off, you know, (laughs) But actually, a few things need to happen before you could really do anything. I mean, really, you've heard that the stranger did it, but you need to actually believe that the stranger did it. Now, that's become a whole lot easier today to verify than it used to be. I mean, if somebody did that to me as a kid in Virginia... Uh, on a Sunday, uh, what would need to happen? Well, first I'd need to wait till Monday, right? Because the banks aren't open. And then it's not like I could just first thing Monday morning get online and check my account. I might even have to go physically to the bank and double proof my identity before they would let me even know what my account said. So I better not be spending a bunch of money before I verify that and believe what the stranger did. But even still, if I believed it, I would need to do some thinking. My daily choices would actually take time to kind of work out. I'm not used to being a multimillionaire. I'm used to eating cheap fast food that might not be good and I could be in a fast food line and you know go whoa I don't have to be in this bad fast food line I'm super rich I can afford the best food possible all kinds of new choices you'd make after the reality soaked into your mentality but until the reality soaked into your mentality or your thinking you might not change very much at all because old habits die hard so turn with me in your bibles to romans chapter 6 we have gotten into the practical section of romans or beginning to get into the practical section romans 6 through 8 as joel said kind of one of the high mountain peaks of all scripture, is about sanctification. It's about working out what we've learned about the gospel in our real lives. The very first part of chapter 6 anticipates a huge objection that probably had been thrown into Paul's face many times as he tried to do synagogue evangelism as he would tell the people about the Messiah and about Jesus, and that salvation is not about law-keeping, it's about what Jesus has done. And the grace of God is more amazing than you can imagine. 
I'm sure many in those synagogues threw up into his face the objection, oh great, let's just sin it up then. If grace is so amazing so that we can get some more grace. So Paul dealt with this objection ahead of time in the first verse of chapter 6. We called this the question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And in verse 2 he gives the answer. He says, may, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? As a Christian, Paul says, your fundamental identity has changed. Your relationship with sin is different than it was before. You are dead to it. And if that's the case, you won't be living any longer in it. So verses 3 through 10 are the explanation. So we've seen the question, the answer, and now the explanation. Let me give you the kind of quick overview, and then we'll remind you of what's in the details. The overview is verses 3 through 5 declare our union with Christ. Verses 6 and 7 circle back and specify the results of dying with Christ. Then verses 8 through 10 offer the balancing specifications of the results of being raised with Christ. So now let's look, look at it more in detail. Verses 3 through 5 declare our union with Christ. It's basically three statements. The first one is in the form of a question that are supporting what he said in verse 2. So verse 2, his big answer is, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now he gives three, three statements of support. The first one is basically saying your baptism represents your conversion. When you trusted in Jesus, you were joined to what he accomplished on the cross. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now verse 4 builds on that. If we're joined to his death, then we'll also be joined to his resurrection, and that leads to a new way of living. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Third statement, verse 5, summarizes this whole thing for us and basically just gives us a core truth to know and to count on. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Like I said, now verses 6 through 7 circle back to talk about Jesus' death and our relationship to that. And then 8 through 10 will circle back and focus on the resurrection part. Verses 6 and 7, we've studied already. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Our former self 
connected to Adam came to an end on the cross of Christ. You are no longer ruled by King Sin anymore. Sin is no longer in control. You don't have to sin anymore. But just like my illustration at the beginning, just because you've been freed from eating bad fast food doesn't mean that those old habits have all changed. You've done the wrong thing for a long time. Plus, you've got remaining sin pulling you back to those bad habits. Plus, we have a real enemy, the devil, who is out to trip us up and get us. Plus, we live in an evil world system that is against God. So we still will sin. But the key is that we understand we don't have to. We have been set free from sin. You may act like you're still that old slave, but you are not him or her anymore because of your union with Jesus. Paul's goal is to help the Roman Christians and the Holy Spirit would, imply, would include us in that application that we would get this new reality into our thinking. Get the new reality into our mentality. Because only when it soaks into our hearts, we start making new lifestyle choices based on our acceptance and belief in this understanding of the way things are. So today, we want to get into verses 8 through 10. This is when he circles back and specifies the results of our co-resurrection with Jesus. And then the next section is verses 11 through 14, which is the application of it all. Like, how do you apply this truth? And I want to start that one as well. So today, my, my aim is to, is to look at this specifics of our co-resurrection, verses 8 through 10, and then start on the application and look at verse 11. Here's the results of our resurrection with Jesus, verses eight through 10. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. As Paul Barnett said, you don't just plunge into the waters of baptism and remain there. You come out of the waters as well. We're also united with Jesus' resurrection. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, here's the certainty of our, our connection with, with Jesus. If we were connected with his death, that's the basis of our being beneficiaries of his resurrection. This is a condition that we should accept to be true. This is a fact. Since we have died with Christ, it could be, we believe that we will also live with him. This was the bigger goal the whole time. It wasn't just to have sin's rule broken in your life. It was also to give you power to live for Jesus. 
It's not just being co-crucified. It's also being co-resurrected. Some see a future tense here and ask a question about that. So look at it again in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And they see this future language and wonder, what exactly does Paul mean? Does he mean we will live with him when Jesus comes back and our bodies will be raised with Christ? Is that what he's talking about? A distant future connection with the resurrection? Or is he talking about something that would apply right now? And so in that sense, the future would be a logical future. So it's logical that after the crucifixion comes the resurrection. And so maybe that's all he means by using the future tense. Kind of just a logical thing as opposed to our distant future resurrection when Jesus comes back. Well, there's definitely a sense in the Bible in which we are raised with Jesus right now spiritually. Paul talks about that other places in his writings. In Ephesians chapter 2, for example, Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 4 and 5, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That seems like something that's, that's spiritually true about us right now. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says it like this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay. And then we go back to chapter 6, and the whole point of Romans 6 is that this co-resurrection with Jesus has real-life implications for us right here and right now. But of course, our full and final resurrection will happen when Jesus comes back. And our spirits that have been removed in death will be reunited with our resurrected bodies and we will thus be forever with the Lord. I appreciate the way John Stott put it. It's doubtful that Paul would have ever conceived of one without the other. In other words, Yes, Paul's talking about the spiritual co-resurrection with Christ, which logically follows our co-crucifixion with Christ. But, of course, he's also got in mind the, the full and final fulfillment of this in heavenly glory with Jesus. So verse 9 supports verse 8. He says, "...we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again." Death no longer has dominion over him. This comes from instruction that they would have known already. So Paul's very comfortable to say, we we know this. You can stand fully persuaded on these facts. Jesus rose from the dead. And he's never going to die again. Jesus' resurrection 
unlike the resurrection of Jesus' friend Lazarus, was a once-and-for-all deal. With Lazarus, he was literally raised from the dead. Jesus called out, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead man came to life. But the dead man who came to life eventually died again. That's not how it was with Jesus. Also, Jesus' resurrection that we see in verse 10 is different from some of the pagan cults of that day who would have had rituals that people would have followed, new beginnings based on myths and not based on historical facts. But Jesus' resurrection was a historical fact. Listen to the way Jesus speaks of it in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, where he refers to himself, well, in verse 17, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. That's the way Jesus describes himself to John on the island of Patmos. I died and I'm alive forevermore. Death isn't got anything on me anymore. I got the keys to that thing. It's taken care of. Wow. And that's what Paul's saying. Strong declaration here in verse 9, where he says that death, he will never die again, and death no longer has dominion over him. Death no longer has mastery over Jesus. Death no longer has control over Jesus. Death no longer can dominate Jesus. Death no longer has power over Jesus. He was raised to an endless life. Tom Schreiner says, as the sinless one, he suffered the consequences of sin and death for the sake of believers. R.C. Sproul said, death did not have dominion over Christ for very long. He was vulnerable to death only because of the imputation of sin. But after he paid the price for our sin, death became powerless. Now here's the thing. Here's Paul's point. Here's where he's going with this. What's true for Christ as our representative is also true of us. We are really incorporated into Christ. And so when Christ died to sin once for all, and death has no more mastery over him, this is true for you as a believer. You, you see what I mean about you got to get this stuff working out in your, in your head and in your heart because these truths are reality, but reality is so different than the way we've lived our whole lives. It takes work to get these truths in us and to be saturated with what the Bible teaches about this. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. John MacArthur said he died to sin in two senses. In regards to sin's penalty, 
He met its legal demands upon the sinner. He bore sin's consequences for us. And in another sense, Jesus died to sin in regards to sin's power, forever breaking its power over those who belong to him. Death is called an enemy. Death is called the last enemy. And the Bible says that Christ has defeated that enemy. Tom Schreiner said, death and sin rule together. One cannot rule without the other. So think about that. Death and sin rule together. One cannot rule without the other. So sin, big deal. If it doesn't have consequences that lead to death, death. You can't do anything apart from sin. So you're connected. They're connected together. And Christ defeated death by overcoming the power of sin. In chapter 8, verse 3 of Romans, Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he, can sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He sent his son and he condemned sin in the flesh in his son. Jesus never sinned. I remember one day when the Lord kind of really brought that reality into my heart. I was in Nags Head, North Carolina on the beach. It was kind of a beach retreat at the end of my freshman year of college. And I've been reading in Isaiah chapter 53 just about the innocence of the lamb that was slain. This is the prophecy about Jesus. He would be slain for our sins. You know, this section, by his stripes or wounds, we are healed. He's the innocent one. And yet he went to the cross for me, the guilty one. And just thinking about that was just an awesome experience because the Lord just really impressed upon me just how pure and innocent Jesus was and yet he willingly suffered and died for my sin on the cross the Bible so clear about the innocence of Jesus in his own with regard to his own righteousness in 2 Corinthians 5 21 for our sake He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, Jesus was tempted. He lived among us. He understood what we have experienced. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He was tempted by the devil himself in the wilderness. He knows what it's like to live in a hostile environment. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, Since 
Therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In chapter 4, verse 15 The author of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unwilling to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You know what the deal was with those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? They had to be perfect. They had to be blameless. I remember at the end of, uh, or in Malachi, the, the prophet Malachi was ripping the people, saying, you're bringing junk sacrifices try giving that to your governor see if he will accept them and you are dishonoring God by bringing trashy sacrifices you've got to bring the best the pure ones the blameless ones why why is that such a big deal because those picture Jesus and his perfect sacrifice him who never sinned one time The author of Hebrews makes this very plain in chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus was innocent. And yet it said back in Romans that he died to sin for the death that he died he died to sin once for all his undeserved death made possible your redemption because he was innocent his death counted he qualified to accept God's full wrath for our sins He's the God-man. He could, he could endure all eternity's worth of hell on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me who absolutely deserve to die and go to hell. Jesus' death was once for all. It, it is absolutely final. It never needs to be repeated. Again, the book of Hebrews makes a very big deal about that as it's comparing and contrasting the sacrifice of Christ with the Old Testament offerings. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, it says, For it is fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
In chapter 9, verse 12, the Bible says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, he says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Chapter 10, verse 10, the author of Hebrews says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We can have full confidence in what Jesus accomplished because it was once for all. There's a big football game this afternoon uh, and it's called the Super Bowl and it's one of the most watched events in all of the world. People are going to have their eyes on Las Vegas to watch the Kansas City Chiefs beat the 49ers and they're going to be all excited about that. And if that happens, it will be fantastic and Patrick Mahomes will will be celebrating and it'll be like wow I've won more Super Bowls than anybody who's under 30 years old but then do you know what happens next after that for the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes they just have to win again it's over yeah you won the Super Bowl this year might be the 49ers but if the Chiefs win it you know you did it but now Now what? Now what? It's not like you're the once for all victor never to have to have another Super Bowl. No. You just have to keep coming back and doing it, do it again next year. Jesus' victory never needs repeating. It's once and for all. But then look at the end of verse 10. After that once for all death, it says, but the life he lives, he lives to God. R.C. Sproul, he's just going along in his commentary and he just kind of pauses and says, you know, raising Jesus from the dead was easy for God. I, I don't know exactly if that makes a point in this verse, but I thought that is really neat and that is really true. And I'm going to write that down in my notes and say that. (laughs) Raising Jesus from the dead was easy for God. It was effortless. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Because Jesus' work against sin is decisively done, he is now and forever untouched by sin and death. He is only subject to the rule of God. And again, the key point that we keep coming back to that Paul's going to drive home to us is the same is true for you. Shout for joy. You are no longer under sin's curse that you inherited from Adam. Now, it says in here, he lives. And it actually says he lives twice in a row in verse 10. The life that he lives He lives to God. Both of these verbs are present tense verbs, which stresses continuous action in the original language. 
His resurrection life has no end. What does it mean to live to God forever? The life that he lives, he lives to God. It's a Godward, heavenly life. The old preacher Charles Swindoll said, the resurrection life has God as both its source and its purpose. God raised him from the dead. God raises us from the dead spiritually. God is the purpose. He's the aim. He's what we're living for, for Jesus and for us. We share in the same resurrection power and life because of our union with him. Your life as a Christian will change. Your life as a Christian will change. Now, it's not going to be as fast as you would wish it to be. It's not going to be as absolute and complete as you wish that it would be. But it is certain that even though you came to Jesus just as you were, as the old hymn says, you don't stay just as you were. Some people think, oh, I've got to get cleaned up before I can come to Jesus. My life is a mess. Jesus would never accept me being such a mess that I am. I better turn over a new leaf again and try to get things cleaned up. That's foolish. That's foolish. That's like thinking, I'm too dirty to take a bath. It's like, no, no, that's the whole point of taking a bath, right? You can't get yourself cleaned up to come to Jesus. Jesus is the one who cleans you up. But once Jesus receives you and cleans you up, he doesn't just leave you in your mess. He starts changing you through the power of the Holy Spirit, uniting you to Christ himself. Your desires start to change. Your words start to change. You've heard stories about people that just have filthy mouths and they come to Jesus and they stop cussing. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not talking about perfection because we're all works in progress and each of us has different issues, okay? So we're not comparing issues. I'm not saying if you've ever said a bad word, you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that there ought to be a difference between your mouth before and after coming to Jesus. If there's no difference, then I got some questions. If there's no difference in your attitudes, I got some questions. If there's no difference in your actions, I've got some questions. You might say, all right, there's nothing. There is nothing. I've told my story a lot of times over the years, but I grew up in Virginia Beach. I grew up in a, a typical Southern Baptist church And I prayed the prayer and walked the aisle when I was eight. And there was no real change in my life. Now, I was a good kid. My parents were great. We we raised me and my brother in church. I knew right and wrong. If I did what was wrong, I was tormented by that. I don't think that that was the Holy Spirit as much as it was my own conscience and the words of my loving parents that had told me right and wrong. So I was a good kid, but in terms of spiritual desires to live for Jesus, 
before eight, they weren't really there. After eight, wasn't really there. Nothing really changed. And I bumped along throughout my, my early teen years. And, and after that, got into the youth group, which wasn't the most spiritually minded youth group. And I kind of got into the wrong crowd there a bit. Temptation started looking a little more attractive. I got worse. I used to tell people that. I got worse after I got saved. If you find yourself saying, I got worse after I got saved, there's some problems about your understanding of salvation. There were problems about my understanding of salvation. When the guys gave me, uh, uh, put me onto the messages by this comedian, I started listening to it and he was sharing the gospel and I was like, wait, wait, wait a minute. I believe this. I believe in Jesus. And it came to life in my heart. And I started seeing some differences in my life. I wasn't trying, okay, now I've got to start loving people because now I really do believe in Jesus. No, I just started loving people. I started getting convicted about things I didn't even know were sins. It's like, ooh, that wasn't good. Ooh, what was that? I shouldn't do that. I need to live for Christ. The Lord was making changes because he united me with Christ in his death and resurrection. There were desires and attitudes and words that were different than they were before. Certainly not perfect. Like I said, we're all works in progress. That was a long time ago. I'm still a work in progress. Makes me sad to say, but it's absolutely true. But I'm not the same person as I was when I was 16. Because the Lord is changing our lives. One more application. If you are here today and you're not a Christian and you know it and you realize you've got some sin issues in your life, let me tell you it took the cross of Jesus and the resurrection to break the power of sin and death. You need him. You aren't going to fix yourself on your own. If you could fix yourself on your own, God wouldn't have sent Jesus to the torturous cross. God did it because it was the only way for your sins to be forgiven and the power of sin to be broken. And that's what God did. And God really did raise Jesus from the dead. And he truly does offer you free forgiveness and pardon. And if you will take that offer, sins power over you will be broken. Look to Jesus today. He offers himself to you right now. Now verses 11 through 14 really begin the practical application. And I just want to make a start on this. And I just want to look at verse 11. Notice the very first word in verse 11 is the word so in the English Standard Version translation of the New Testament. So you must also, or you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's a direct inference from what he has been saying to what he is saying now. That's the word so. Because of this, I'm telling you that. 
Here's where it's all been going. I've been telling you the truth about Jesus and his death and resurrection and how you're part of that. So let me tell you where we're going. Here's where we're going. You must, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You need to receive this. You need to be, you need to reckon it to be true. You need to judge it as right. You need to count on it. There should be a heartfelt confidence. Now, this is also a present tense verb, but this is also a command. It's a present tense imperative verb, which means it is a call for continuous reflection on what it means to be united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. S. Lewis Johnson said the present tense means it is an attitude of faith, not a specific act. Okay, here's the difference. What I'm not saying, what Paul's not saying is that you should take a moment now and check a box and say, yeah, I consider that true and move on. He's saying, keep on considering it true. Keep on thinking about it. Like like Johnson said, it's an attitude of faith that you are now adopting as part of your reality. It's not pretend. We're not pretending that you also are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It is not mind over matter. It is accepting God's evaluation of your situation. It is true for Jesus that he died to sin and lives to God. You as a Christian are in Christ Jesus. You're united with him. Therefore, it is true for you. Now, this section of Scripture is a great example of the Bible's indicative and imperative dynamic. Indicative are statements of fact. Fact, 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 fact. Imperative are commands. In other words, you start with what God has done for us, facts, And then it becomes the ground and the basis and the fuel for what we do for God. It is so important not to miss either one of those things. And people in the Bible, Bible reading and just in the Christian life, they miss one or the other all the time. And it's so important for us not to miss them. What do you mean? Well, some people miss the indicatives. They miss that the Christian life is all on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. So a lot of times in Paul's letters, he starts out with a bunch of indicatives. I mean, the classic example is the book of Ephesians because Ephesians has six chapters, the first three are indicatives. This is what God has done. Oh, he chose you before the foundation of the world. He's done all these things. It's amazing. In Christ Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead. You're with him. This is great, 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 great. Unbelievable. And then chapter four starts with a big therefore and 
4, 5, and 6 are all commands. There's hardly any commands in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. There's nothing but commands, it seems, in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So suppose you just pick up your Bible randomly and you look at some of the commands in chapter 4. And you didn't even read 1 through 3. You just start with chapter 4. I'm just making one up. Ah, I got on cussing earlier. There's a verse in chapter 4, isn't there? What is it, 429 or something? Let no unwholesome word come from your mouth. Only words that edify. Don't cut down with your words. Only words that edify. So what if you just randomly open, you find that verse? What could you do? You could be like, okay, I better get serious about my mouth. My mouth has been cutting people down. I've been throwing out all kinds of bad stuff. I need to straighten up immediately. And you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to, I'm going to make a, what is it, a swear jar or something like that. I'm going to have to put a dollar in the jar every time I say a bad word and that thing's filling up with money. You, know? <laughs> you can become a legalist. You can try to change in your own strength. Because you started in chapter 4. You can think my efforts in the Christian life is what it's all about. But it's not what it's all about. What it's all about is the foundation of chapters 1, 2, and 3. The indicatives of the gospel. That's where we start. But, but, some people randomly flip open their Bibles to Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. And they just think about how great it is that Christ died for me. And let me just start by thinking about how much Jesus loves me and how great the gospel is. And I'm just going to sit there and enjoy that. And my whole Christian life is thinking about the gospel. And that's great. Wonderful. And now I don't really do anything. I don't really try to live for Jesus. I just celebrate how much Jesus loves me. And in fact, if you tell me that Jesus wants me to do something, I'll just think, well, I can't really do that. I'm kind of a flop and a failure. But it's okay because Jesus died for that too. Isn't that great? You become passive. And you become lazy. And you become licentious. You just start cutting corners because it doesn't really matter because the gospel. So what we know is Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 leads to 4, 5, and 6. They're both there. They're both absolutely vital. You start with your position in Christ. You remind yourself of the gospel foundation. And then you get aggressive in living for Jesus on the basis of Christ's work for you. Not to earn his favor. Not to keep his favor. But because you have his favor. And you've been united to him in his death and resurrection. So keep reckoning your deadness in your mind. Because sin will keep trying to re-enslave you. What does it mean to be dead to sin? Paul tells us that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be dead to sin? 
the ESV Study Bible says, dead to the pervasive love for and ruling power of sin. Someone else said, it's the opposite of our first section of Romans. In Romans 1, 18 through 3.20, it was the universal condemnation of all people, where we were all super alive to sin and super dead to God. Now it's the exact opposite of that. R.C. Sproul said, it's a bit like D-Day. World War II was over, but nobody really knew it yet. And we still had the Battle of the Bulge to fight and different things But the war was done. We have been made alive in Christ Jesus and we need to think of ourselves in those terms. Kent Hughes said that that understanding this verse is like prevention theology. It literally curbs our sinning. The more you think about your deadness to sin and being alive to Christ, the less you will sin. And so if this is a foreign thought to you and you've just not ever thought much about it, this is something to start doing right now. Right now. I'm with Christ. I'm dead. Because Jesus died on the cross, I'm dead to sin. Sin's power over me has been broken. I'm alive with Jesus in his resurrection. I have new power to obey You can even say it about a specific sin that you're struggling with. I am dead to that sin. Maybe there's a specific person that's tempting you. You can say, I am dead to you. No, don't say that. (laughs) That's that's going too far. You don't want to sin though, right? You You don't have to sin because of Christ and his work for you. You are to consider this to be true and consider, secondly, that you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. God is our master, not sin. We have real world power to live differently in this world. I have power to love my wife that I never had before because of my Union with Jesus in his resurrection. I can resist wasting time in front of a screen because of Jesus. Instead of burying yourself, or not burying, buying yourself another prize on Amazon, you now have power to give money away. You can rejoice even in your trials. You can have grace to trust God when it would have seemed impossible to trust God. It's impossible not to worry about this situation. No, you have grace to obey because you're in Christ Jesus. First time Paul uses this in Romans. It's kind of interesting. If you've read Ephesians lately and remember chapter one, all he talks about is in him, in him, in Christ, in Christ Jesus. Our union with Christ is so huge. That's Paul's favorite shorthand for that. Now, let me, let me end with a couple of pictures picture paints a thousand words and a lot of the commentators they're trying to figure this out and they're they're like how can you explain this how can we how can we communicate this dynamic to people and so they they try to give some stories one person said imagine a newly freed slave after the civil war ended in 1865 They had some sense of what it meant, but they had a lifetime of habits and patterns that went the other way. 
And it would take some time before the truth of that reality of freedom settled in. I can imagine that's true. Just because Lee surrendered at Appomattox, just because the union was brought back together and the Emancipation Proclamation took hold of all of the states, that didn't mean that everybody just immediately got it. It took some time to work that out in real life. But when it did settle in, different choices were made the deeper that truth penetrated. Okay, you see the connection. You've been set free from sin, but you need to let that truth of your union with Christ sink deeply into you so that you start making different lifestyle choices. John Stott, he asked if a married woman could live as if she is single. That's an interesting one. If you get married, it's really interesting. I've said to young couples, you're still going to be you, and you're still going to be you, You're going to get a new piece of jewelry and you're going to say some words in front of some people and in front of the Lord. You sign a legal document, but you might not feel different before and after that wedding ceremony. But in reality, everything is different. And John Stott said, yeah, technically a woman who's married could live as if she's single, but that's not her reality anymore. And Stott said, she needs to look at her wedding ring and remember her vows and remember her new status and live in light of that. He says, if you're a Christian, you should live like it. And Stott said, remember your baptism. The symbol of your union with Christ. Remember it and live it out. I thought, that's a great, that's a great thing to say. That's a great truth. That we should keep thinking about gospel realities until your former way of life seems unthinkable. Until you find new power and new motivation to live for Jesus. And, and the commands of the Bible tell us what that looks like and how to do it. Yes, you're commanded not to use bad words, but words that lift up other people. And it's not that you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, and make a swear jar or something like that to break your bad habit. It's that you look to Jesus and you remind yourself of Christ and what he's done on the cross and in the resurrection, not only for your motivation, but then to remember you too are united with him in his death and resurrection and you are not enslaved to your potty mouth. I am not going off on anybody who said bad things this week or anything like that. I do not know why this keeps coming in my head. Maybe the Holy Spirit... No, anyway, I I, I, so... I am not picking on anybody about that. That's just the only illustration that's flapping around in my head this morning. Anyway, great stuff to think about. Great stuff to think about. Go back through Romans 6 and just keep tracking because 
it's, it's difficult. We're like wading through deep waters here. And we want to get these realities in our minds. Now, he hasn't been giving us a lot of commands. But we're starting to get some here. The first command is to think about it and consider it to be true. And then we're going to start getting commands about what to do after you think about it. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our time together. Thank you for these wonderful truths. And I pray that you would send the Spirit to help us be more aligned with the truth of the Bible and even our position in Christ and that it would help us in our battles against sin. And I pray that we would be more and more like Jesus. Father, we do thank you for the work of Christ. And we thank you that he died even for the sins we commit as Christians. Even when we say bad words. I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds. And that you would clean our conscience as we reflect upon the work of Jesus for us. And I pray that in light of the work of Jesus as our hearts are filled with gratitude and zeal for you, that we would live for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.